Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Good morning, Sandy. How are you today? I am most excellent because I am on vacation. You're on vacation? Mm-hmm. I'll be on vacation. You'll soon. be on vacation tonight. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. How have you been feeling lately? Well, that's a deep question. Mm-hmm. I've actually been feeling pretty good. Mm-hmm. I have been working my program recovery on some things that needed attention. And when you work it, it works. Do you want to share what you've been working on? No. Okay. No. I want to talk about our guest today. No, but let's just kind of like okay. surface area. Let's just go to the top of the pyramid, the iceberg, tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg? About what you've been working on, the right. issue. So I have an addictive personality, which could be why I'm in recovery from the disease of alcoholism. It could be. And I've also identified it in my life that I have a sugar addiction. Mm-hmm. And sugar comes in many forms. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few months ago, two months ago, I gave up sugar, white flour, potatoes, rice, almost all fake sugars. Mm-hmm. And I am feeling lighter and better. Mm-hmm. Not more energetic yet, though. Mm-hmm. If I could have an afternoon siesta... I would be good to go for a longer day. Well, that was a lot of the iceberg. Yeah. But thanks for sharing that. Yeah. You know what I appreciate is that you've been showing up at our story slams, the pearls, uh-huh. story slams, people expressing addiction, recovery, life stories. And you know, we've had a, our guest has been, he was in the Grand Slam, wasn't he? Yes. Well, well deserved. Yes. Made it into the Grand Slam. Hi, Brian. Hi, Phil. Hi, Sandy. Would you like to introduce yourself? Who are you? Who am I? That's a deep question. (laughs) Yeah, well, you can go as deep as you like. Uh, I'm Brian McManus. Mm -hmm. I am a person in long-term recovery. Mm -hmm. I'm also a formerly incarcerated person. Mm -hmm. And I am the recovery coach manager for the Department of Corrections uh, program here with CCAR. What did you think of the storytelling slams? I, to be quite honest, mm-hmm. going into Megan Perry's first workshop, mm-hmm. I was a little skeptical. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's maybe a little bit of my personality. Um, but I bought in right away. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. And... Uh, you know, we've kind of created this little uh, pearls community mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know have you know some great people, um, awesome storytellers, mm-hmm. and some great recovery. So uh, I really like the concept of pearls too, and we've had Megan on as a guest, but it's the idea of you just take a pearl off of your necklace and just describe that one pearl. You don't have to describe the whole necklace, and that resonated so much with me when Andrea Lovett was talking about that that I thought that was a brand new way to tell stories that are 
media friendly and attention friendly. Uh, that are they're short, three to five minutes, but you can really convey a powerful message in that time. I hmm. didn't realize how emotionally invested you can get into in a story. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say, after the Grand Slam, that next day, I, I felt it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that certain emotional tiredness. Yeah. Um, I'm, and when I tell stories, it's very healing for me to tap into those emotions uh, and describe them, what that was like. And um, I just, I'm a fan. Well, you know, yeah. uh, and you know I am. I'm not going to let that go. I felt the same way you did, Brian. You know, Phil is really pushing me to go and... I don't know if you've ever seen this, but <laughs> Phil occasionally has hissy fits. No. When things. <laughs> have you seen me have a hissy not, fit? Not really. I am. But you well. can imagine, right? <laughs> you can just imagine. And so the first time he really wanted me to go, I had a work obligation, mm-hmm. but he had kind of a hissy fit. So the second time, I'm like, all right, I'll do it just to please mm-hmm. my spouse. And then I found the whole process. Like a, it's a practice of recovery, just going through the process. And even yeah. if you don't ever tell your story anywhere else in public, I just felt there was a healing factor at work. There definitely was. Just putting the story together and, you know, the word that comes to mind is catharsis. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just letting things out there in a different way. I was always surprised at how stories shifted because I've been telling like my recovery story of how I found recovery a certain way for 30 years and then because of the workshop I realized that what I thought was like the turnaround was really just leading up to the actual turnaround and this process really forces or forced me to dive into what really happened what was really going on and I just found that incredible. It's just, wow. How did you choose your story? Um, you know, when I was thinking about it, I was trying to come up with something that meant something to me. Mm-hmm. And also was something that I hadn't talked about. Mm-hmm. And for the last one, it was also something that was about not only my recovery, mm-hmm. but um, my my family's recovery. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we have something in common. Mm-hmm. We're the spouses of cancer survivors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was, um, I think we explore the pain. The storytelling gives you permission to explore the pain. And revisit it and rework it and rethink it and acknowledge it yeah it's also about vulnerability and as we've come to believe there's great power in vulnerability that's one of the paradoxes of recovery isn't it so you you know you're like neat you know you look you could be like clark <laughs> kent you're like almost like he does have like that kind like, of quality could be like, is he superman <laughs> do you think really but, but uh, what was what? yeah? But what was Clark Kent like growing up as a young as a young man or a boy? What what's your earliest memory and what was life like for you? So I guess when I say you look like Clark Kent, you're clean cut. You're 
Um, you're, you can, He's you, handsome. You can say that. Uh, it's better if you say that He's than handsome. I say that. Very articulate. Uh, you can't possibly be in recovery. You weren't in jail. That's you're a white guy too. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but you, <laughs> you are know, a white guy. It was a shock when I found <laughs> out. Yeah. And so, how you know, what was it like? And let's get to all that and see how we ended up in prison. What he really wants to say is tell us about Little Brian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Clark Kent, I've heard before, but I think the one that's more appropriate. Potsy from Happy Days. Oh. Dating myself. <laughs> I remember Potsy. I don't Potsy. know about that. that I, I've so gotten either. that uh, okay, a okay, few times as well. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, little Brian. Um, I grew up in Hamden, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up two blocks from our New Haven Center manager, Rita. Rita. Yeah. Um, Did you know each other? She played softball mm-hmm. with my uh, middle sister. I'm the youngest of four. Mm-hmm. I have three older sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Rita and my sister Nancy played So small softball. world. So uh, when I s- said to my sister, I was like, do you remember Rita? And she was like, her first words out of her mouth, great softball player. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so Rita's got that reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as I said, I um, was the youngest of uh, four, so I was in the only boy, so mm-hmm. uh, I was incredibly spoiled and tortured at the same time. Um, <laughs> uh, I am, uh, my parents, I'm first generation. Mm-hmm. Both my parents are Irish immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a great childhood. Um, really loving family. Um, I think just being part of an immigrant community. There's a big Irish community in the New Haven area. Um, it was all about family and extended family. What brought them to the U.S.? Opportunity. Um, my dad, uh, they both came from small farming communities. My dad uh, dropped out of school or was was told he was leaving school at when he was 12 and he went to work on a pig farm um, about 50 miles away from where his family was and as you can imagine um, in the early 1940s in Ireland 50 miles would have been like going to California mm-hmm. for us. Yeah. yeah. Did you um, say 12? 12. Wow. Um, and uh, he was one of the most well-read people I have ever met in my mm. life. Wow. Um, just an incredibly smart, kind man. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, her father passed away when she was 13. She was the second oldest of six. So she and her older brother kind of took responsibility for the farm. And uh, she uh, had an aunt who had come to the United States. Um, my aunt and her husband owned a bar in New Haven. Hmm. And uh, when my mom was 16, uh, she, my aunt said, you know, why don't you send her over? And so my mother at 16 went to live with an aunt uh, that she had never met before. 
Um, so courageous. Both yeah. Of them. Yeah. Very courageous um, at young ages. Yes. Yeah, so, but it was just really part of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't a lot of opportunities in Ireland. Um, so uh, my dad came uh, to live with family in New York. Uh, lived in New York until uh, he was drafted and went to Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a permanent resident, not a citizen yet, but uh, wow. so, uh, and then after he got back from Korea, what, his sister had moved to New Haven, so uh, he came to New Haven and they met in New Haven. Wow. Um, so when you think of Irish families, and you did mention about uh, the bar, alcohol <laughs> is usually involved. Is that true or is that just a myth or? I, I, you know what, it, 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 it's not a myth. Um, there are people on both sides of the family who have struggled. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you drink when you're happy, you drink to mourn, you drink to celebrate. Um, it, it, it is part of the culture. I don't think it has, is as much of the culture as you see in kind of <laughs> pop culture, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it is very much. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, uh, when I was growing up, didn't drink often. Mm-hmm. Um, get, uh, having people over and something I heard you said, she used to drink highballs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> my parents drink their choice. Um, and my dad was a kind of a shot in a beer type of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so uh, it was uh, around and uh, my dad worked a lot. Um, he worked two full-time jobs. What did he do? He was uh, in the mornings, he worked at the New Haven Colony Historical Society museum in New Haven. Um, he was a custodian maintenance mm-hmm. guy there. And then he was a custodian for the New Haven school systems in the evening. And on weekends he um, landscaped. Wow. Um, wow. Education was really important to him. He sent, or my parents sent uh, my three sisters and I to Catholic schools from the time we uh, started school through high school and uh, education I think probably because of his lack of edu- mm-hmm. lack of formal education mm-hmm. um, they really stress the importance of education so you're a Catholic school guy I am and how do you talk about that I <laughs> I um, I still consider myself a Catholic. Mm-hmm. I had a great experience. I think structure was a good thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, I was a very sensitive kid. Mm. Um, so I think having kind of a knowing where I was supposed to go, what I was supposed to do was... Uh, a really kind of important part. When you, we have a child like that 
He, we always joke he, he likes a well-run classroom mm-hmm. from kindergarten on. If teacher couldn't provide that, that's the only time he wouldn't be doing well. Yeah, and that was very much me. And uh, well, you say you're sensitive. You I know, was very but, sensitive. But, well, what does that mean? If you looked at me when I was younger, I would cry. Really? Yeah. And what do you think that was about? I don't know. Really? Uh, Crying is my people, Phil. It's my people, right? I can tell already. You're Swedish. He's Irish. Ten minutes into this. I'm just kidding. Um, Yeah, I was just, I was. If people looked at you wrong, you would cry. So you were like, would, would, if you were in the mental health world and you touched upon it now with your roles is that a diagnosis i don't think being <laughs> sensitive it would be like is no. that would you think you were anxious anxiety maybe it, i've always struggled with a lot of anxiety wow yeah my um, my anxiety takes the form of tears yeah you know other people have it take different forms but i cry um when you're angry you cry too okay i cry over everything <laughs> <laughs> uh it was just kind of who i was um and I was, aw, I want to give little Brian a hug. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also little Brian was, um, little Brian chopped in the Husky department. Oh. Uh, so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I was possibly the most unathletic kid you ever met in your life. Really? Um, doesn't this look more and more like me, just a male version? <laughs> I'm just along for the All ride. Right, keep going. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, my Little League baseball career mm-hmm. was 0 for 3 years. Oh, <laughs> okay. Gotcha. So, uh, but then uh, my, uh, I always loved the water. Mm-hmm. So, um, my um, mother got me involved in swimming. And mm-hmm. It was the best thing that kind of happened. I kind of started coming into my own a little bit around mm-hmm. swimming. Right. What was the age differences between you and your siblings? We are all almost exactly three years apart. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, my oldest, I think the largest gap between any of us is like two years and ten months. Mm-hmm. Um, or the smallest gap is two years and ten months. Yeah, wow. Were you a good student? I was, mm-hmm. um, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I had trouble focusing. Uh, I was definitely a rule follower and got my homework in. And um, my mother would say that I probably could have done better in school, but. Uh, mm-hmm. I uh, I was. You were um, probably bored with school. It was too easy, or was it? Yeah, I a very active mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, thinking about it now. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's ADD, maybe. A little ADD. A little um, anxious. Yeah. A little anxious. Uh, later in life, I was also diagnosed as being bipolar. Really. Um. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there was a lot of stuff <laughs> going on. Were you bullied? Not really. I always okay. had a lot of friends. Yeah. Um, I always was kind of the kind of happy kid that uh, 
at least on kind of on the outside that people that, liked that people liked. kids liked yeah got yep. it yeah awesome. so sounds like some normal I don't know what's normal anymore but we've heard a lot of um, kind of adolescent stories of what it was like and I've shared often about social anxiety and only recently discovering in the last couple of years of most likely have ADD myself and never knew it. <laughs> and you said maybe an active mind, but that was me jumping around from one thing to the next, to the next, yeah. to the next, just keep jumping. Um, so what happened where you, when did you start, I'm assuming, was drinking your first yep. drink, drug of choice? And it was definitely Do you drinking. remember it? Um, you know, I I always remember like sipping on you know, my dad's beer okay. or emptying the highball glass and taking a quick sip before mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, anybody realized. And I liked it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a story that I just remembered wow. um, a few years ago, and uh, it has become a kind of a part when I tell my story, I always kind of um, include this. I went to Ireland with my parents. I was probably eight or nine years old. And when we never, it wasn't like we were going on a touristy vacation. It was purely, you went, visited family and one house to the next. And there was one night my parents were going out and it was probably a couple of days after we got there and combination of the jet lag and just Ireland is not the warmest place in the world. It's always kind of cool and damp. Mm -hmm. um, I came down with a cold and my grandmother said, um, why doesn't Brian just stay here with me tonight and we'll, um, and you guys go out um, and I'll stay back. So we did that and my grandmother made me the Irish cure-all, mm. a little hot toddy. Um, Irish whiskey, a little honey, mm -hmm. hot water, mm -hmm. and it was one of the greatest things <laughs> I ever remember. It was a magical elixir. The next <laughs> night, and it, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. I remember lying to my parents that I wasn't feeling well. To see it, yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, to see if I could stay home and get another hot toddy. Did it work? No. <laughs> they knew that. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, the behaviors even then mm -hmm. were starting to, mm -hmm. you know, it was that feeling. It just made me feel mm -hmm. different. So where did it take off for you? High school. Yeah. Um, it was... Uh, one of those things, I was a, you know, you hear it all the time, you know, you, people are always saying they really didn't feel like they fit in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I did well in school, but I wasn't one, you know, I was in, at that time, honors classes, the few AP classes that were, but I wasn't one of the really smart kids. I was a good student. Mm -hmm. I was a swimmer. So I wasn't really a jock. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
so it was like I kind of circled different groups, always in my own mind, not feeling like I fit into anyone until uh, beer was introduced. Mm -hmm. And uh, from early on, I had a knack of drinking a lot, drinking fast. And for a bunch of six, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, that's a cool thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, just kind of took off from that there. Did you ever get caught? Oh, I got caught a few times. Yeah. Um, there was one night that I really overindulged. Um, and I have two friends and, you know, my mom still talks about them because rather than just kind of ringing the doorbell and taking off, they stood with me on, to make sure that I got inside. Wow. Mm -hmm. And my dad opened the door. It was probably 12.30, 1 o'clock, mm -hmm. and I literally fell. Mm-hmm in the door um, and I mumbled something incoherently mm -hmm. and uh, yeah and I was sick for about three days I was grounded for a month mm -hmm. but you know the first opportunity after I went right back understood what happened after high school I went to, I did pretty well in high school. I mm. got into a good college. Mm. I went to Providence College. Woohoo! Uh, go Friars. Mm -hmm. um, another Catholic school. Yep. Um, and it was the perfect place for me. Mm -hmm. Providence is a beer school. Who would know? I would have wine. You know, back in the mid-80s uh, to late-80s, it was, um, it, there wasn't a big drug culture, but it was a lot, a lot of beer. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I was able to do well, you know, kind of a reoccurring story in my life. Mm -hmm. I was able to do well enough mm -hmm. to keep people happy and off my back mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know beer took a really big role drinking became a really um, big part and uh, once I started once I had one or two another recurring uh, pattern was I didn't have an off switch right what um, was your community at school because you know I'm working on a campus now and how did you find your connection group? Obviously, Bear had something to do with it, but. Uh, yeah, you know, it just ended up kind of forming together. I lived with my freshman year roommate, one of them for four years, the wow. other one for three. Um, I am still, 31 years later, we still have an active uh, text thread of 13 guys. Wow. Um, that we still uh, one one is w is a has found the rooms with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, but um, it was just uh, you know we kind of all just kind of happened to mm -hmm. fall together. Yeah. 
So um, not a sport or fraternity or no, no fraternities yeah. at Providence. Um, and uh, the one really good thing that came out of my four years happened my last week, my senior year. Um, I was at a party. We had a formal um, the last week that we needed uh, a date for. And uh, one of my buddies wanted to, me to ask one of the girls who was kind of in our equal but opposite set of girls that we always hung around with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, being the anxious, unsure, I was like, no, no, I really can't. Um, and he said, we were at a party in his apartment, and he was like, I'm not giving you another beer until you ask Carrie to the... Mm -hmm. And she, she knows this story. Mm -hmm. And so I went up. The master of timing that I am, I... <laughs> She is consoling one of her friends who just asked someone and was turned down. Oh. <laughs> and I asked, uh, at the time, Carrie Ryan mm -hmm. to go to uh, the senior formal with me. Mm -hmm. 31 years later, we're married for 25 with uh, three, three daughters. That's wow. awesome. Yeah. I was afraid you were going to puke on your shoes because that's kind of part of Phil's story. <laughs> that was the first time I drank and went to a dance. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I did I did that my share of time. Oh, so yeah. So, Carrie Ryan from a nice Irish family? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, her dad was a high school gym teacher, kind of the old school gym teacher and basketball coach, kind of the real old school gym teacher. Mm -hmm. who yeah. People hated, but then came back years later and thanked him for, oh, yeah. uh, you know, teaching him, them a lot of life lessons. We had a C-car board president and served as a personal mentor for me for many years, and a friend of Sandy and I, Bill Leary, who uh, it went to Providence and is a big benefactor for Providence and. I think ice hockey. Yeah, he yeah. built the girls' ice hockey locker room and things like that. So, yeah. yeah basketball hockey school. Yeah. Those are the, right. and actually track mm -hmm. um, are kind the of. Their soccer good. team wasn't too bad either. Uh, yeah, they made a, right. I think, a final four run about uh, mm -hmm. two, three years ago. Yeah, yeah. So you met Carrie, and you probably got a little more schooling knowing what you ended up doing. Yes. Yeah, so uh, after that, after graduating from Providence. Mm -hmm. um, With what kind of degree? I had a degree in history. Okay. So I used to joke I was going to open a history shop. Because people would ask me, what are you going to do with a history degree? Mm -hmm. um, I went to law school, mm -hmm. which was kind of... In my mind, it was what was expected of me. Mm -hmm. I think it was assumptions that I made and not really put on me by my family, but I thought it was being put on me by mm -hmm. my family mm -hmm. um, because it was always... I had a cousin who went to law school, and she was always kind of, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, then I had a cousin who was uh, went black sheep of the family, 
uh, Yale undergrad, Harvard MBA. <laughs> and there was always kind of a, I remember my parents having a conversation, why isn't he going to law school? And, you know, but he was getting his MBA from Harvard. So mm -hmm. I, yeah. I was kind of like. That works too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like. So but where, where did you go for law school? I, at the time, it was the University of Bridgeport. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right down the street, really, from uh, the CCAR Bridgeport mm -hmm. Community Center. Um, but the law school at the time, what, the whole university was having some issues. And the law school actually seceded from the University of Bridgeport and became part of Quinnipiac. Oh, okay. So I have... I haven't like, heard of that yeah, happening yeah. before, but okay. <laughs> I think it's the only time in the history wow. of, at least in, for law schools. Mm -hmm. um, and our second year of law school, it's a three-year program, we weren't sure if we if we graduated we would be able to take the bar because of accreditation issues between the with mm. the transfer of the schools but i graduated uh -huh. so you're drink are you drinking all through undergrad and grad school, school yeah um who, who paid for your schooling just curious um i am was very lucky um, in terms of undergrad, mm -hmm. um, Providence was very generous to me. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to um, Scholarship. get scholarships and grants. and yeah. um, I got out of Providence and my parents told me that you know law school would be on me. Um, so uh, they said, you can live at home. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in terms of tuition. So I worked in my last year of law school, I worked full time at the world headquarters of Subway. Huh. Sub no, you, you did? Yeah, in the like, legal department. Okay, that makes sense. Wow. So Did you meet Don Pertman then? I, I, I did, I did, and then um, just because of circles, we ran into each other a few years yeah. ago again. Wow. And who is he, hon? He is a um, very outspoken person in recovery that ended his career as chief development officer of Subway and had a long, long, long career there. And now he's chairman of the board of the Phoenix. Yeah, and he's also, I think, he was on Undercover Boss, where he talked about his own recovery and all that. So it was where he kind of cool. came out. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So uh, I worked there, um, and at this point, my drinking was really weekends, but usually to excess. Yeah. Um, are you married yet? Uh, no, uh, we got married a couple of years after I graduated from law school. Graduated from law school in 1993. Did you become employed as a lawyer, as an I, attorney? I did. Mm -hmm. um, I was working in Stanford for a small um, law firm. Doing what kind of law mostly? General practice, a lot of real estate stuff, mm -hmm. um, a lot of wills, trusts, small business, evictions, stuff like that, kind of mom and pop legal work. Did you like it? 
I hated every minute. Of it. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> really? Um, I what? never really enjoyed practice. I definitely did not like law school, mm-hmm. but I was kind of in the middle of it. I was. How do I get out of this kind yeah, of thing? Exactly. <laughs> I was invested in it. Yeah. And you know, I grew up in a family. We, you know. We were working class, mm-hmm. you know. I never wanted for anything, but there was never a lot of spare money around. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it makes a, sense to me. I mean, the thing that you've been threaded through is you've always had a lot of friends, a lot of people, mm-hmm. no matter what. I would think that the legal profession is not all that people-oriented. I mean, that you're serving people, mm-hmm. but not in the same way. And that's the one thing I liked. I liked interacting with people. Um, I liked talking with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the day-in, day-out grind mm-hmm. of practicing law was just not something. Um, and there were a couple of times where I thought I could possibly get out, and I didn't. And then, you know, Carrie and I got married. A couple of years later, we had our first of three daughters. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, you know, what was I going to do at that point? I was making a pretty good living. Um, I was able to support, uh, at the time, you know, help support our family. So where do I go? Um, And then, uh, you know, for the first few years, Again, my drinking was kind of contained to weekends and maybe a couple of evenings a week, but it was controlled, uncontrolled drinking, um, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. (laughs) You scheduled it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then when our oldest daughter, Kate, was about uh, nine months old, I decided I was going to open my own law practice. Wow. Um, And, you know, probably kind of a combination of my old law practice was getting a little sick of me, and I knew the writing was on the wall, and um, I thought I was probably worth more than they thought I was worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, the egomaniac with an infer- yeah. inferiority yeah. complex. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, you know, kind of in one of those I'll show them moments, yeah. I decided I was uh, going to um, go out on my own. Mm-hmm. And yeah. for the first year or two, it worked out really well. Um, Again, I fell back into that rule follower, you know, kind of good boy, doing everything. Um, and then I had some friends who were in the mortgage business who would invite me out to lunch. Um, and uh, lunch for them what would start around noon and maybe end, end around 6, 7 o'clock. Um, and I was like, I kind of like this. Oh, man, you ate a lot. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of calories, <laughs> but there wasn't a lot of food. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that would happen occasionally. 
but it ended up slowly progressing, you know, to once every other week, to once a week, to a couple of times a week, to almost every day, mm -hmm. and then earlier and earlier, and, you know, the choice of places where I was getting lunch started out as kind of nice, okay, to I was finding the earliest dive bar that opened up and, mm -hmm. you know, may serve some form of food. So what's your family life like when this is all going on? Uh, there were a couple of times there where I was given, you know, the, the ultimatum, you know, you got to get your act together. Mm -hmm. um, and I would, I would, you know, for a couple of months. Right. Um, I think my first storytelling story was kind of a, around that, mm -hmm. where I had um, about 60 days and things were going good and I was on the golf course and someone offered me a beer and mm -hmm. I had it and I was off on another run. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I would bounce in and out of the rooms when things were kind of getting bad for a week or two after that or a month uh, and you know then just go back and I heard you so how'd your practice do as or fair That's a great how, did question. You, how did your practice fare as you were spending more and more time in these lovely establishments uh, my practice really failed I started <laughs> making a lot of mistakes mm -hmm. I started covering up my mistakes <sighs> um, and you know hindsight is 2020 and hindsight when you're in recovery thinking back to the things you, you're like you are such an idiot <laughs> I know. Um, it's also so anxiety producing when you start to make mistakes and try to cover it up and just oh my gosh I, I can relate to that and I was just digging myself deeper and deeper into yeah. financial holes. Yeah. Um, I was still had a fair, fairly good business going. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of money in and out of my client trust accounts because I was dealing with um, people's buying and selling homes mm -hmm. and uh, refinancing mortgages. So to cover up my mistakes. Um, first time I borrowed some money. Mm -hmm. Quote unquote borrowed. All right. Um, the worst thing that happened to me was I paid it back. Mm -hmm. um, because once I crossed that ethical line, it became easier and easier to cross. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, next time I did it, I probably paid back about half the money and I was just digging myself deeper and deeper into a hole. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't working as much because of my drinking. Did you have people in your firm or was it just still you? It was basically just me. Yeah. Um, I had a paralegal, I had a couple of paralegals from time to time, but mm -hmm. I was the only one who had access to um, the financial records right. and stuff. Um, so, you know, at this time we have three, three daughters and, you know, kids are expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. um, 
we were living in Fairfield County and, you know, trying to keep up with um, just what we considered a normal lifestyle. You know, it was never like we had flashy cars, but, you know, we wanted the kids to look good, da, da, mm-hmm. da, da, do dance, do this, do that. Um, and I, you know, I can't put lipstick on a pig. I kept stealing money, mm-hmm. always thinking the next the next time, the next big deal, I'll be able to pay, pay back. back. Right. Um, but the more I did that, the more anxious I grew. The more anxious I grew, the more I drank. The more I drank, the more mistakes I made. Uh, the more mistakes I made, the more anxious I got. The more I drank. The more you took to and cover the more that. I, yeah. And I just kept spiraling. And then mm-hmm. uh, in November of 2010, mm-hmm. um, November 18th, uh, I... <laughs> had a particularly bad day in terms of drinking. Um, I was I had a business dinner that night, so I knew Carrie wouldn't know. She would expect me to come home with some booze on my breath. So that gave me permission to start at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I drank all day, drank all night, came home, morning of the 19th I got up and um, it's one of those days just that headache nausea Um, for me part of my hangovers I describe it as mind-numbing depression Mm -hmm. just you know the world's going to end and uh, I got a call from one of my clients Um, and he said you know I think there may be a mistake uh, the bank is telling me that my old mortgage uh, wasn't paid off and um, someone's been making payments on it mm-hmm. and I was like no nah, that's got to be a mistake you know got him off the phone as quickly as I could and everything he said was absolutely right mm-hmm um, at that point, I decided, you know, I had screwed up everything in my life. My wife and kids were better off without me. And over the previous couple of years, I had been collecting life insurance policies. And as an attorney, I had realized that the suicide clause on those policies had expired. And if I had killed myself, there would be enough money to pay back the money I owed and Carrie and the girls would be um, at least taken care of for a little bit until Carrie would mm-hmm. would be able to figure out something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I made the decision I was going to kill myself. Um, I, you know, at this point there was absolutely no hope. I was dark inside. You know, I was devoid of any hope at all. Um, and uh, so I went out. Um, I had been driving around with a full propane tank in the back seat of my car for, for a couple of weeks. Um, 
combination of laziness uh, and a combination of, you know, if I got in an accident, the car would explode. Um, so I found this um, kind of deserted road with a big group of really old, mature trees. And I was going to drive into that as fast as I could. And, uh, you know, hopefully they would be able to find parts of me. There's a lot of flaws in that plan. Well, you know. <laughs> the, but I the, get it. You weren't thinking too well. I, I so. wasn't thinking too well. But uh, so I found it. I was driving towards it and a thought popped into my head. Um, my daughters would never be able to ask me why. Right. Wow. Um, and uh, so I... I had told Carrie that I was, at this point I was going to kill myself. I had taken apart my cell phone, taken the battery out of it. I think I had watched enough spy thrillers in my <laughs> life to know if I had done that, they wouldn't be able to track my phone. All right. I uh, put my phone back together, and I told her I was going to head to Bridgeport Hospital because I was really scared that I was going to do something uh, to hurt myself. Mm -hmm. And that's where the first time I honestly asked for help. Um, so I spent about 10 days there. So you went, you instead of going to the road with the trees, you had this thought and then you told Carrie you were going to go to Bridgeport Hospital, which wasn't a ruse. You actually went to yeah. Bridgeport Hospital. I, I was on the road with the trees yeah. and I was heading towards the trees when I had the thought about my daughter so I stopped and you went back home I, I didn't go back home but I you couldn't go back home at that point but you so you went straight to Bridgeport Hospital. Hospital instead wow um, wow how'd you know to go to Bridgeport Hospital it was the closest hospital just um, a hospital I need it help. was I need help wow um I knew I wasn't in a place where and so you went in and what did you say to them do you remember um I remember walking in and I just said, I'm scared I'm going to hurt myself. Um, I need help. And what was their response? They, they put me in this locked room for the next, <laughs> like, 24 hours. It's so kind and compassionate. Should, right? It's better than waiting, right? Well, yeah. yes, but we'll lock um, him in there so he can't hurt himself. And I just remember being in that room asking God for help. Yeah. Um, I had asked God for help previously. You know, I had said, you know, if you get me out of this situation, mm -hmm. you know, I'll do good things with the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I thought, you know, getting me out of this situation was winning the lotto mm -hmm. and being able to pay back and keeping my family intact and and I prayed that night honestly, and mm -hmm. you know, I my prayers were answered, mm -hmm. not in the way that mm -hmm. I wanted them to, or I thought I wanted them to be, mm -hmm. but in the way that I needed them to be. Right. So I spent the next ten days in Bridgeport Hospital, um, 
and uh, you know that's where I was diagnosed as um, being bipolar and also that uh, you know there's a good chance you're an alcoholic mm -hmm. and I'm probably one of the few people who just latched onto that bipolar um, diagnosis and said, no, it's not the booze, it's bipolar. <laughs> did you go through DTs? And I did. I was, uh, you know, they, I went through the detox protocol while I was in yeah. there. And, mm -hmm. and the decision, and at this point, there still wasn't any police involvement or, so the decision was made uh, between Carrie and I and my family that, um, I was going to, when I got out, I was going to get an attorney and I would turn myself in. Mm -hmm. um, so I spent Thanksgiving in Bridgeport Hospital and got out, I guess it was either late November, early December, and um, I got an attorney. And he said, well, we have two options. Um, you can turn yourself into the state authorities and go to state prison, or you can uh, turn yourself into the federal authorities because it was banking issues and go to federal prison. And he said, person like you would probably be better in federal prison. <laughs> Wow. Um, so uh, we had a meeting with uh, the U.S. attorney and uh, a gentleman from the FBI, and uh, I told them everything. Mm -hmm. And over the next seven or eight months, I cooperated with them. I showed them everything. And uh, the day after my girls got out of school, um, we had made the arrangements because we didn't want the headlines to come out while they were in school. And the um, U.S. Attorney's Office was willing to wait. Um, I pled guilty to one count of bank fraud. Mm -hmm. um, and then November of the, uh, December, October of that year, I was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. Um, and then uh, I was given a couple of months to self-report. And in early January of 2012, mm -hmm. trying to do all the math in mm -hmm. my head, right. <laughs> um, my 12-step sponsor drove me to federal right. prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Right. Um, I, I just want to go back. One of your stories. Yeah. yeah. I just want to go back. That 12-month period yeah. from when I left the hospital or 13 months until I um, reported, I became fully immersed in 12 steps. Um, yeah. I went to multiple meetings a day, um, and I had a ton of support. You know, um, 
and 12-step meeting is one of the few places where you can go and say, I stole a lot of money, I'm going to prison, and someone will raise their hand and say, don't worry, been there, done that. (laughs) (laughs) You you mentioned that um, you've discussed it with your family and Mm -hmm. Carrie. Um, So is that your parents and siblings? My parents and and siblings and Carrie's parents. And how did all that, like, Uh, what was that experience like? It was painful, like, you know, the pain I caused Carrie, uh, my mom and dad, and her parents. Um, you know, it was something that just, uh, mm. if I could take back those minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I often say when I am telling my story that um, I don't regret my journey. I regret the hurt that I caused. Mm-hmm. Um, Carrie and uh, um, my 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 family, um, and uh, you know I'm one of the um, a unique person where my relationship with my mother-in-law, she was one of my biggest supporters. Yeah. Um, uh, Carrie often jokes that uh, her mom got me much better than she <laughs> ever did. Um, <laughs> Well, I think what you shared really touches me um, deeply because it's rare to hear a story. I mean, we hear the story of the active use and the the criminal behavior or making bad decisions and just when the addiction has a hold. But you came so, you came clean so quickly and so honestly um, with incredible courage I mean, to go to the hospital and to say, you know, I think I'm going to hurt myself, and then to say, I've been messing up all this time, I want to make it right, I'm going to turn myself in? Wow. Well, wow. I, I won't give myself that much credit because the noose was definitely tightening. Well, <laughs> you could have resisted, you know, and you could have gone a different way. And, yeah, I, and, and I don't know that your, your family probably – were they might have been hurt, but I don't know how surprised they were. I mean, I don't know how well a job, good a job you did of hiding all that from everybody. The financial stuff was a surprise. The drinking was definitely okay. not a surprise. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. So you hid that part pretty well. I, but, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I had been able to hide it from a lot of people. So you went to prison. I did. You go for twenty-one months. I spent 15 months uh, at the federal prison camp in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And what was that like for you? Um, Carrie and I had decided going in that um, she and the girls were only going to visit twice in those Mm -hmm. um, because we didn't want the girls spending their weekends Mm -hmm. in a prison mm-hmm. visiting room. We wanted them to do right. soccer and ballet be kids. And, and be kids. Yeah. Um, so the separation from Carrie and the girls was really hard. Oh, yeah. Um, but it also gave me some time to think um, 
and contemplate and try to figure out, you know, what what I was going to do. Right. Um, and uh, I met a guy in prison <laughs> um, who was um, a real estate in- investor from Pennsylvania mm-hmm. who had had previously had many, many years of sobriety, of recovery. Yeah. And he relapsed and made um, a lot of bad decisions himself, Mm -hmm. and he ended up in uh, prison. Uh, Ira Pressman. And, but he had that foundation in the 12 Steps. And we went through the steps together. Mm. Um, and uh, it was a time where I was able to kind of focus on my recovery um, and uh, try to help become the father and husband that I wanted to be. Um, got out. I spent three months in a halfway house here in Hartford. Um, That must have been fun. I would have stayed in Pennsylvania for the three months if I had known. (laughs) Um, The full house was better than the halfway uh, house. It it, it absolutely was. (laughs) Wow. Um, One of my friends from high school um, helped get me a job with a power washing company. Woo! I like um, that. It was, <laughs> I fell off a roof at one point. <laughs> well, you said you're not too athletic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you put me in the water, I'm great, but uh, mm-hmm. you put me near water and on a steep, yeah. steep roof. What I'm a metaphor, so though. You're cleaning up. <laughs> yeah. It, I joke it was a good, clean job. <laughs> um, well, you know, I remember... And you'll appreciate it. Um, BJ's in Manchester. Oh, yeah. I was just there. We were, it was in August. I was cleaning out the produce dumpster. No, Ooh. sir. Outside. With a power no washer? washer. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the low point. Oh, well, oh, we've all been there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but some people in the neighborhood started... Um, seeing that I was trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And they put me in touch with a guy who kind of had a little bit of a similar story, who was running a private investigation agency. Mm. And uh, he ended up giving me a job um, doing legal research for, they did background checks on reality TV show contestants. <laughs> Wow. Um, a job I couldn't make up if I... <laughs> um, so I did that. I still wasn't making mm-hmm. a lot of money, and I was looking for a part-time job. And you hear the stories about people with criminal records mm-hmm. having a tough time mm-hmm. getting jobs, and it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get a job in a convenience store. I couldn't get a job... Uh, on a cl- with a cleaning company, I was being turned down for all sorts of jobs. Especially with they probably 
more tolerant of other charges than when they see bank fraud. Yeah. Did your family have to relocate because of the loss of income? Carrie went back to work. She had been home with the kids. Okay. Um, She was able to get a job. She worked. um, She works in children's publishing. Mm -hmm. Um, We had a woman in our neighborhood who was um, the. I forget her title now, but she had a very good job with Highlights Magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. We had a subscription. Yeah. <laughs> we still do. Yeah. Um, and uh, they needed help in their publishing, uh, on the, with their publishing arm. Nice. Um, in the marketing department. It was a job which allowed Carrie to work from home, except two days a month at that time. She would have to go out to Pennsylvania where they're... Mm-hmm. Uh, located. Um, so she went back to work and we also got a lot of help from Carrie's parents. Yeah. Wow. Um, because they wanted the house we were living in was the only house that our girls really knew and it was important for all of us that they have that kind of sense of normal, yeah. stability. Yeah. Um, uh, so you couldn't find a job, and you're getting turned down. Something so must have happened. I ended up uh, reading on Craigslist that uh, there was a job. Um, knowledge of the 12 steps, driving uh, men to uh, AA meetings uh, for a facility in um, New Haven. I was like, great. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I sent in my resume, called me back. I went in for an interview. Um, It was an aftercare program in New Haven, which has kind of blown up since then. (laughs) Um, And um, I met with the phase one director. And he's looking at my resume, and he goes, there's a there's a lapse here, and you were an attorney. He looked at me disbarred, and I was like, yes. He was like, prison, yes. He was like, you know most places that would um, eliminate you from consideration? Mm-hmm. Here we consider it a badge of courage or right. a badge of honor. All right. <laughs> um, so I got a job working at Turnbridge in New Haven yeah. part-time. Um, so I would work the private investigation during the day I'd hmm. work who interviewed you was it John John Stewart <laughs> yep. uh, yeah that's good um so uh, I um, worked there a couple of nights mm-hmm. um, I would work there on Saturdays and Sundays um, and that was my first job in kind mm-hmm. of the recovery field right um, so I kind of kept doing that type of work and working the uh, day job um, and, um, you know, uh, the girls were doing well um, in September of 2015, Carrie was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. Um, wow. So. Um, she had a tough, uh, she's an amazing, amazing person. Mm-hmm. She has had a tough, she had a tough decade. 
Um, so, um, so she had a, she had surgery, went through chemo, um, and radiation. Thank God she is doing great today. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, kind of rocked our world and rocked my sense. Of, you know, things had been going well. Things, you know, were mm-hmm. going back. And uh, again, I fell back on the friends in recovery who um, really gave me the strength to get through. Um, and uh, we got through that. Um, so Carrie finished surgery was diagnosed in September um being getting diagnosed at the end of September is one of the worst things that can happen to a woman because in October it's breast cancer awareness month and everywhere you look uh, is a reminder yeah um at least for Carrie yes mm-hmm. interesting point um but uh so she made it through uh, two months after she finished treatment, her mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and passed away 10 months later. Wow. Um, and her mom was such a huge part. Your um, biggest supporter. She, your fan. She, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, she just was a huge part of our lives, our yeah. girls' lives. Um, and uh, so it was... Um, that was, you know, just one blow after another. Um, that October, um, the state of Connecticut told me that I would never get a license as a private investigator. So uh, after, on my birthday, my boss at the time uh, said, happy birthday, can I talk to you in my office? Oh, boy. And it was... The conversation went, um, you have a job here for as long as you want one, mm-hmm. but you're really, he was like, you're really kind of boxed in. You're mm-hmm. kind of at the point where unless you had your license, there's not a lot of room for growth. Right. And uh, at the time, you know, ego and everything, I was, you know, pissed off and annoyed with him but it was the best thing he could ever do mm-hmm. for me. Um, and then over the next kind of typical, you know, knowing I had to do something but trying to figure it out, um, it was December 29th. I was looking uh, through, want, well, not want ads anymore, but online want ads. Um, and I saw a job, and it was for an emergency department recovery coach. Mm-hmm. And I, to be honest, I did not know really anything about recovery coaching. Mm-hmm. But I looked at the d- job description, and I said, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And I showed it to Carrie, and Carrie was like, this is what you've wanted to do. Mm-hmm. She was like, go for it. Right. And I sent it in and I just talked to a bunch of people that I knew in the recovery field just from having worked in the treatment side. For, mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, it's a great organization. And 
Um, I think the job posting expired on the 31st. I put my resume in on the 30th. And mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks later, I got a call, did a mm -hmm. phone interview. And um, by some stroke of luck, a little help from God, mm -hmm. I was offered a job uh, in the emergency department. Um, and uh, we look at your your history too and say that's uh, your prison <laughs> term. That's part of your resume. Yeah, uh, <laughs> not a badge of honor. It's your resume. Yeah, everything you said lines up with exactly what you're telling us. So yeah, so, why not? Uh, you know, I and then I started. I think on March 11th. Yeah, my father-in-law. While my mother-in-law was sick, um, we found out that he had a serious lung condition um, that was terminal. And uh, a week later, after I started, he passed away. Oh mm. my gosh! So he's been through a lot. That, I, I I haven't. Carrie's been through. Well, a, you so know, part of all that too. She uh, family's been through. through a, yeah. The family has been through a lot. Our girl Carrie, our girls. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, a lot so of loss. A lot of loss. And you were um, you were an emergency department recovery coach for a period of time. Yes, I was. I did it for. I was a coach for a year. I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, Very good at it, too. You saw a lot of people in the emergency departments. I, I, I did. <laughs> and the nice thing is I have a couple who still reach out to me. Yeah, right. Um, a few years later, mm -hmm. I will get, there's a gentleman who will reach out to me on Facebook, and I have a woman who will call me every few months just to check in. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, and I know the schedule was pretty demanding. It is for emergency department recovery coaches, no doubt. And you made a decision for your family to go to a different setting where you'd have more of a more of a, <laughs> a, a set a, schedule. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, we were working combinations of nights and oh, days yeah. and weekends, and I had spent so much time away from my family. Yeah. Um, and missed so many things. Um, someone presented me with an opportunity for a job that was nine to five, mm -hmm. Monday through um, Friday. Yeah. Um, coaching. Yeah. Um, and I think I was a little bit naive mm -hmm. because I thought, you know, everybody in recovery and coaching, we were doing it for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. And I went to work for a private treatment center. <laughs> Who shall remain nameless. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I really found out pretty quickly that my philosophical ideals mm -hmm. didn't exactly match up with theirs. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty diplomatic. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, Well, it became apparent the way you described it to me is that it was more about the billing hours and whether you're actually trying to get people well, which is the way of the treatment industry in a lot of places, unfortunately. 
You know, our success was determined by how long we could keep keep someone in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, not, you know, and my philosophy was somebody may want or need a coach for a month. All right. Mm-hmm. And if they're at a good place and they feel good, you know, that's your choice. That's Release your, them. Yeah, let them fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let them go. Um, but they had set time limits and expectations. Mm. And, you know, when words like metrics come into recovery coaching, mm-hmm. um, it didn't align with my beliefs. Mm-hmm. Which were really a lot more aligned with the CCAR beliefs. Right. Um, so if you ask Jennifer Chadukowitz and Rebecca Allen, mm-hmm. I think I spent the next year trying to come back. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, I think I may be the most interviewed person in CCAR <laughs> history. <laughs> You're up there, but we've had other people we've interviewed quite a few times too. Um, you know. And then we had a, a fit. That uh, for you and um, for CCAR, where we brought you in to manage our Department of Corrections yeah. Recovery Coach program. What's that been like for you? Uh, it has been an absolutely incredible mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I came in with, at the time, uh, there were three coaches who were absolutely amazing people and amazing coaches Mm -hmm. Um, shortly after I started two other coaches had been hired Mm -hmm. and joined the team Um, and we just recently hired a sixth coach Mm -hmm. Um, and I have honestly a team that makes my job seem like I'm not really working I try to do my best not to get in their way. Right. Um, because they are really good and really talented coaches, and they're just as talented as they are coaches. Um, they're just even better people. Mm-hmm. Um, Which corrections facilities? We, right now, we are in York. The Well, we're still doing everything virtually Mm -hmm. hopefully come september we're starting to see some movement and some things that we will need to do um some trainings between now and then but we're in york uh, which is the women's prison Mm -hmm. we are in robinson osborne willard sipolsky corrigan hartford correctional center A New Haven Correctional Center um, and Bridgeport Correctional Center and we're in the parole offices in Hartford, New Haven, Waterbury, Bridgeport and Norwich. It's so powerful to think about what's happening in the world today with decriminalizing and addressing social injustice issues and all of that and while all the legislators figure all that out and the police departments cars in there already supporting recovery yeah and you know it's something that I'm passionate about recovery but I during my time you know you pointed out something I'm a white guy yeah <laughs> um, I'm glad I could point that out <laughs> for you 
<laughs> y- you know, and coming out, I had friends, I had people um, who were still willing to help mm-hmm. support me. I had an education. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people really coming out of the prison system who didn't have those the things that I had. Mm-hmm. Who were incredibly smart, talented individuals. Um, who just really every door was slammed in their face. So why wouldn't you go back to using or right. going back to um, their previous lifestyle? Um, there okay. was. You've had those advantages, and you face an incredibly difficult road and. Yeah people that didn't have your advantages it's almost it's impossible it it really is Mm -hmm. um and the amazing thing that the coaches are able to do uh we're lucky to live in the state of connecticut Mm -hmm. um because there are a lot of resources for things like recovery re-entry but it can be very challenging to find them Mm -hmm. um you know, we live in an alphabet soup of agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's e- very easy to get frustrated. Yeah. Um, you know, you're newly out, uh, you're back in the community, and someone tells you to go to A, B, C, D um, to get whatever you need, and you go to a, B, C, E, mm-hmm. and they tell you, no, you're in the wrong place. Right. Um, and um, so what the coaches are able to do is help people navigate. Yeah. Um, rec- we all know recovery's mm-hmm. difficult. Reentry's difficult. You put the two things together, and it just makes for a volatile combination. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the coaches are able to do is able to just let people know that, uh, you know, you have someone here, someone who's willing to help you get what you need. Um, and they've done an incredible job mm-hmm. with that. Um, if I can't, there's a great story that Dominic tells. Um, he was working with a guy for a few months while uh, before he was released, he had been in prison for a number, a number of years. I want to say 20 plus. Um, and Dominic met him the day after he got out at his halfway house. And um, guy said, give me a hug. And our coach Dominic is a big hugger. So mm-hmm. he, he hugged the guy and the guy stepped back and said, you know, this is the first time in 20 plus years I've been hugged by someone who cares about me. Mm-hmm. So Dominic calls me. He was like, he was <laughs> like, I struggled to keep it together. Mm-hmm. I could hear the emotion in his voice. Mm-hmm. And that really just sums up right. what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, and that guy is doing great now. Yeah. Um, Care about one another. Yeah. It's not rocket science. No. Don't let the policy or the bureaucracy get in the way of what we need to do. You know, I think I've, since 
taking this role. I've sat on a lot of reentry meetings, and mm-hmm. and y- I hear a lot of people talking about, well, a coach for a, in a reentry type position um, needs to have lived experience and been in prison. And my thought is, after seeing our coaches, no, they don't. They just have to care. Right. Um, and. You know, I go back to something I learned in the Recovery Coach Academy. People don't care how much you know Mm -hmm. until they know how much you care. And that's really the philosophy that I try to keep our our program based on. Mm -hmm. Um, If we care about people and they know it. So So all through COVID, we've had... We haven't had the ability to go into the prisons. Um, that's what we're really looking forward to. Um, but how many people have we seen since the program started, roughly? At, as of yesterday, mm-hmm. it was 204. Which is still... Ama- it just, wow. Since January, I have to do a little math. And this is July. And this is July. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... I think, I believe it's close to 160. Right. And so we're Um, just really starting to build momentum and think about 160 individuals that would have returned without any support, any help. I wonder what you think the result would be. It's probably not going to be as good as it has been. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. the, the numbers are that someone coming out of prison is 200 times more likely to overdose. Mm-hmm. 200. 200. Right. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think we've had anyone who has engaged with the coaches. Some people have gotten out and have not uh, engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, but of the people that we have actively worked with, we've had no one overdose in that time. What a tremendous opportunity, too, for people who... Uh, have had the time in prison and don't want to return but don't really know how to live a life of recovery and just to be available to coach recovery yeah and say this is what you need to do and this is what to expect and you can get through this it's just such a phenomenal program and so needed not just in Connecticut but everywhere why wouldn't it be and and brian you think about i'm really good at uh seeing god's handiwork in the rearview mirror but your your entire story does craft you to be absolutely perfect for this role with everything you've gone through even reunification with family you know all the pieces and i'm so glad that you came today to share all that with us thank you I think that's part of being sensitive. <laughs> Your sensitivity is working for you now. Yeah. <laughs> and the other part, just to tie it up for me before we wrap up, is you say you were diagnosed with bipolar. Is that still true? Do you, do you th- see yourself that way, or do you hold on to that? Or I, You know, I, it's something I struggle with. Right. Um, I definitely think my drinking had a definite effect on my mood, mood swings. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. um, 
There are still times not nearly as pronounced where I will go into kind of a funk. Yeah. Um, and I will um, mm-hmm. feel, you know, that sense of dread, that sense of the world's going to end. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm taking care of myself, if I'm doing the right things um, in terms of my own self-care, they're farther and farther apart, and I recognize them. Carrie will recognize if I'm feeling a little off. Mm-hmm. And I can do things. Um, I'm no longer on medication for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are times where Carrie will say, you're getting a little manic. <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, wow. But it is not what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it's just really... I'm in a good place right now, yeah. um, especially since I got back to CCAR. Yeah. Um, I will say the other place that I was at, I wasn't taking care of myself and I wasn't a, my moral compass wasn't aligned with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, their business practices. Got it. Um, so. I would have a lot of periods where I just felt that sense of dread and, but, um, you know, I'm happy to put my head on my pillow at the end of the day now. Yeah, I'm very glad you're back. Thanks for making that decision. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) You're welcome. And I think that's it. Thanks, Brian. (laughs) Thanks. Wow. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters Podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at recovery matters podcast. And you can use the hashtag recovery first to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.